If you look at the inserts in the bulletin, there are a number of things for you to respond to, to participate in, and to uh, be involved in. If we can flip the lights up a little higher on the sides, that'd be great. We'll just do them all the way. They're in the dark over here. And these are in the light. I don't know what that means about you guys. If they're in the light and you're in the dark. But, uh, you know, it's amazing. I worked at the garage sale most of the day yesterday. It's amazing how one man's junk is another man's treasure, isn't it? I mean, to see all that happened there. Over $23,000. That's amazing for a one-day sale. All to missions. Every penny for the spread of the gospel around the world. And uh, Nathan Henson, welcome. Nathan and Kristen are missionaries in Peru that we sent out a year ago. It's good to have you with us. His wife is back in Peru expecting their first child and uh, in the process, hopefully, of adopting another one. So uh, we thank you guys for serving us and serving the Savior there. Genesis chapter 1, Exodus chapter 3. We're going to look at two different places this morning. As we look at our series, Shipwrecked, we're going to look at the doctrine of God. Actually, I've entitled the message to keep with our nautical theme. I've entitled the message Captain. And I did that because if you know much about sea captains or studied sea captains or know about them, basically a sea captain is a licensed mariner who's in the ultimate command of his vessel. In fact, all persons on board his ship, including his officers, his crew, his shipboard staff members, passengers, guests, and even other pilots are under his authority and his ultimate responsibility. That's our captain. Everything and everyone under his ultimate authority and responsibility. A lot of parallels between God. Who is this captain? Does he exist and what what is he like? That's our question this morning. Does he exist and what is he like? Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Verse that everybody has memorized, everybody knows. It's pretty interesting that the book of Genesis starts not with a theological treatise on the existence of God, not with a systematic theology on the eternality of God, but rather it's a stated fact in Genesis 1-1, his existence and his eternality are presented exactly that way. In the beginning, Baharith, as the Hebrew word used there, says when time began, God already existed. God existed. When he created, he was already in existence. The word Elohim is a word for God there. It's used 35 times in chapter 1 of Genesis, and it teaches us that not only chapter 1, but all of Genesis and all of the scripture is not about the creation, but it's about the creator. And so that's what I want to look at this morning. We're going to look at some arguments for the existence of God, and then we're going to look at a passage in Exodus chapter 3 when Moses was called to lead the nation of Israel out of bondage. Look at some of the characteristics, attributes, nature of God so that we can respond accordingly. You ready? Let's pray. Father, teach us from your word. Teach us about your existence. Teach us about how we should respond to that. Help us to be those who love on those who may not believe the way we do so that they might see the love of Christ through us. That's our prayer in Christ's name. Amen. The doctrine of God. Let me state from the beginning that no one can fully understand or explain God. Nobody can fully understand or explain God. In fact, if you find a guy who says, God, got him, know him, check it off his list and move on, run from that person, don't hang around him. I mean, nobody can fully understand, nobody can fully explain God. I will confess to you that after four years of intense graduate school studies, 30 years of preaching, 40 years of walking with Jesus, there are many mysteries about the Father that I still do not understand. The finite cannot fully explain and fully understand. The infinite man with limited knowledge cannot fully explain the incomprehensible, all-knowing God. It doesn't happen. But there's an eight-year-old who can explain a lot to us. 
His name is Danny Dutton from Chula Vista, California. This made its way around the Internet uh, a number of years ago, and I kept it for a sermon like this. Uh, Danny Dutton, given the assignment, explain God. Third grader, 10 years old. I'm sorry, 8 years old. Here's portions of his essay. He begins by saying, one of God's main jobs is making people. He makes these to put in place of the ones that die so there'll be enough people to take care of things here on earth. He doesn't make grown-ups, just babies. I think it's because they're smaller and a lot easier to make. <laughs> that way he doesn't have to take up his time, doing valuable, his valuable time teaching them how to walk and talk. He can just leave up to, to the moms and dads. I think from God's perspective it works out pretty good, he says. God's second most important job is listening to prayers. An awful lot of this goes on as some people, like preachers and things, I don't know why he says preachers and things, I don't get that, but anyway, like preachers and things, they pray other times in bedtime. God didn't have a lot of time to watch radio or TV because of this. He hears everything, not only prayers, there must be a terrible lot of noise that goes into God's ears unless he has a way to turn it off. God sees everything, hears everything, and is everywhere with that, which keeps him pretty busy. So you shouldn't go wasting his time by going over your parents' head and ask for something that they said you couldn't have in the first place. (laughs) Pretty insightful for an eight-year-old, right? Um, Jesus was God's son. He used to do all the hard work, like walking on water and doing miracles and trying to teach people about his dad who didn't want to, they didn't want to learn about him. They finally got tired of his preaching, so they nailed him to a cross and crucified him. His dad, God, appreciated everything he had done on earth and all the hard work that he did, so he told him he didn't have to go out on that road anymore. He could just come to heaven and stay. An eight-year-old. You should always go to Sunday school because it makes God happy. If there's anything you want, anybody you want to make happy, it's God. (laughs) If you don't believe in God, besides being an atheist, you'll be very lonely because your parents can't go everywhere with you, like to camp, but God can. It's good to know He's around when you're scared of the dark or when you go swimming and the big guys throw you in the real deep water and you don't swim so well. It's good to know God is there. But you shouldn't think always of what God can do for you. I figured God put me here for a reason. So I'm trying to figure out what I can do for him. Eight years old. Pretty amazing, isn't it? I mean, how would you explain God? I mean, how how would you explain God? Is God just the figment of our imaginations, the invention of our minds, the result of an unreasoned faith? Is he just something theologians and preachers have made up so we can get paychecks? I mean, who is God? Jesse Ventura, the professional wrestler and uh, governor of Minnesota. And you're from Minnesota. You've got to tell me why you ever elected him. I don't get that. But anyway, he was being interviewed by Larry King, and he, he was asked about his belief in God. And Jesse Ventura said he is a psychological crutch for weak-minded people. Does he exist? But when your atheist friend states that he doesn't believe, she doesn't believe, God exists, how do you respond? The word atheist, ah, meaning not, theist, meaning God, there is not a God. How do you respond when your friend says, I'm a scientist, I'm a technologist, I'm a philosopher, there is no God. I am an atheist, God does not exist. This morning, I got up, I was reading my news, news on my phone and went to CNN blog. It got my interest because it said, uh, can you hear the voice of God? And I thought this would be pretty interesting. You can go on the CNN mobile today, you can read about it. And uh, the lady writing the article, her dad died young, and she said, when I think of the voice of God, I think of Garrison Keillor and a prairie home companion. That's the voice of God. Some lady said, well, I hear Oprah. Another one said, I hear Spock because he's half Vulcan, half human. And I'm thinking, this is weird. But as I scroll down and look at the comments, 
One that caught my attention was entitled, God is not dead because he never was. God is not dead because he never was. And then this guy went on and did a a long diatribe on why God does not exist. Does God exist? Does he exist? And and when your friend says, we don't believe in God, how do you respond? Do you just say, well, I know in my heart he does. Or, Or, you know, that's what mom and dad taught me. Or, I'm an American. Every American believes there's a God. I mean, everybody knows God exists. And if you don't, I've got my rifle to take you out. <laughs> Does God exist? How do we know that? How do we know that? What is the argument for the existence of God? Well, there are many ways to argue this. There's, there's philosophical arguments or theological arguments. I am going to give you a layman's perspective, if you will. If you want to study this in depth, I, I, I encourage you to contact Stephen, our associate. Stephen is actually writing two books simultaneously about atheism, refuting it. He, he, he's done it from a philosophical, brilliantly done. I, I read the first chapter, didn't understand most of what I read, but it was really well done. <laughs> But Stephen, Stephen is really thinking through this, understanding this, and really, if you've got friends that are atheists and you'd like a, a more detailed and further explanation, Stephen's your man. You need to sit with him, and uh, he can help you work through some of those things. In, in a simplistic way, though, the doctrine of God, when you think about his existence, let me give you four reasons or four evidences for the existence of God. First of all is the cosmo, cosmological argument. Cosmos is the world. Basically, this argument is very simple. The universe is an effect, so there must be a cause. The universe is an effect. It's here. I mean, you look out and you see stars. You look out and you see ground. You look out and you see sea. You look out and you see mountains. Basically, they are simply stated, this line of reasoning argues that since the universe is an effect, every effect has a cause. So either the cosmos, the world we live in, is self-created or there is one who has pre-existed and brought about the universe. It's the argument of the first cause. Every effect it comes from a cause, and so there must be a cause that brought about our universe. Something brought it about. Something or someone. Second argument is called the teleological argument. Teleological argument. The word teleos means, or the concept is to to be purposeful. And basically this argument says purpose, order, and design observed in our universe necessitates a designer. If you look at our universe and you see purpose and you see design and you see order, then the result of that is it necessitates a designer of some kind. When you look at this argument, I read a bunch of stuff this week. I read guys like Christopher Hitchens, guys like a guy who wrote an article on Christianity Today who wrote about, the title of the article is interesting, Saved by an Atheist. And he had read Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, two of the most famous atheists of our day, uh, before Hitchens passed away. Dawkins is still around. And it's interesting. Basically, this guy's conclusion is, these guys are so mad about something that doesn't exist, it must exist. I mean, if you read Dawkins or if you read Hitchens, I mean, these guys are mad. They're angry about that, and they're presenting atheism as a conclusion. And this guy literally came to faith in Jesus Christ by reading Hitchens and Dawkins. His conclusion was, they're so mad about something that does not exist that it must be. Interesting conclusion, isn't it? He began to read the scriptures for the first time in his life, found himself on his knees trusting Christ as his Savior. 
in the teleological argument, what we're saying is there's design, order, and purpose. In this article, Saved by an Atheist, the author says, as I look at the universe we live in, it's obvious that there is creation, design, art, and order. Creation, design, art, and order. He goes on and he says, every time I see a shirt, a dress, a coat, I recognize that it has a creator. Every time I look at my watch, drive my car, or look at a house, I recognize there was a designer. Every time I look at a piece of, at a painting or a piece of sculpture, I recognize there is an artist. Every time I look at order, if it's, if it's uh, Coke cans that have been stacked in a row or rows of corn in the field, or if you look to my closet, the way things are hung in there, you would conclude that there is an orderer. And so he says, if everything else in our universe is a creator, designer, an artist, and an orderer, and I look at the world that we live in, and you see creation, you see design, you see art and order, my conclusion is there's a creator, a designer, an artist, and an orderer who created everything that's here. Simplistic argument, but true. I mean, the teleological argument tells us that basically because of design, because of order, there is a God. Psalm 19 bears that out. It says the heavens are telling the glory of God, declaring the glory of God. You walk out and you look at the heavens and you see the existence of God. His thumbprint is everywhere. Day to day pours forth speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. I called one of our men who's a scientist this week and said, this is what I'm studying. I've got quotes from Psalm 19 and the second Abraham Lincoln. It talks about the, the, the far away. It talks about looking through the telescope. Tell me what you see through the microscope. He said, I see the complexities of life. I see the complexities of DNA, I see all these complexities, and he says, wherever I look, I see the thumbprint of God. Abraham Lincoln said, I, I, I never behold the stars that I do not feel that I am looking in the face of God. I can see how it might be possible for a man to look down upon the earth and be an atheist, but I cannot conceive how he can look up in the heavens and say there is no God. I would correct Lincoln and say, even if you look at the majestic things in the soil around us, you would conclude that there is a God. The design of creation points to a master designer. That's what we're saying. The design of creation points to a master designer. The, the argument, the, the cosmological argument, the universe is in effect, there must be a first cause, the teleological argument, because there's order and there's design in our world, there must be one who is the one who does this ordering and this designing, the anthropological argument, anthropos meaning man, the anthropological argument says this, because man is moral and because man can reason, there must be an intelligent being who brought about morality and reasoning to man. There's an intelligent living creator. The ontological argument, the last argument, is perhaps a more difficult argument or not a sound, but what it says is, where does the idea of God's existence come from? Every civilization that's ever existed has had a religion. That's one of the common things sociologically. You don't have to do it through religious studies, do it through sociological studies. Every culture, every society that has ever existed has always had religion. And so the ontological argument says, because man has a concept of God, therefore there must be a God who places that in the mind of heart of man. Ecclesiastes bears this out in chapter 4. It says God has set eternity in their hearts. In Romans 1 through 3, it talks about how God reveals himself, his existence through general revelation, through the stars, the moon, the sky, etc., etc., that there is a God. But in spite of all that, there are those who say there is no God. There is no God. In fact, it's amazing how we look at these people and talk about how intelligent, how bright, how sophisticated, how academic they are. And many of them are very brilliant people. But here's the reality. If I told you 
with this new shirt I'm wearing. Bev gave me this shirt for Christmas. I think I've worn it one other time. Uh, it has vertical stripes on purpose. Big guys don't need to wear horizontal stripes. Some of you guys need to learn that. <laughs> Fat guys have to know how to dress. But here's the reality. If I told you, here's how this shirt came about. Over time, over time, there were all these particles somewhere in the past, and over time, they kind of collided and came together. And over time, there's an amazing thing that happened. We were driving to San Marcos to go to the outlet mall, and praise God, out of the sky, fell this shirt, landed in my lap, and we didn't have to go to San Marcos. It's mine forever. Amen. Hallelujah. (laughs) Didn't have to shop. You would look at me and say, there's a place for you at STC1. It's gotten white. That's what you would say. Because shirts don't fall out of the sky. Somebody tills the soil, plants the seed, harvests the crop, takes it to a mill, and from the mill it goes to a a, a factory where somebody has designed what the shirt is going to look like, the the colors come out, and everything else is there. And if I told you there was no designer of this shirt, if I told you nobody artistically looked at the shirt, if I told you nobody manufactured this shirt, if I told you over billions and billions of years it just so happened that all the particles of this shirt came together, everything that's here, all this cloth, all the textile, everything, all the, all the little, what do you call those, stitches that are in there, as well as the buttons, they all came together over time, and it's amazing that now what we have as the product, this shirt, you would say he's nuts. But yet we look at people who say, you know what, over time, through adaptation, over time, through the survival of the fittest, over time, it's amazing what's happening out of nothing, out of totally nothing, out of no life, out of the primordial ooze of the past billions of years, all of a sudden, all these particles came together, and voila, millions of years, billions of years, say trillions of years, now you have a body. You don't believe a shirt can be made, but we trumpet people who say a body can be made from nothing, and say, wow, they're smart. And I say, wow, they're stupid. (laughs) They're really not stupid. I shouldn't say that. You know what they are? They're blinded. They're blinded. You see, we look at that and we trumpet that and say, wow, that's amazing. The problem is, and this isn't really a study on creation, creationism, we'll look at that in a few weeks. But the reality of it is, the reality of it is, over time and chance and adaptation, you're not going to get this. It's not going to happen. Scientifically, and we've got a bunch of scientists here, so I'm not going to go too far into that. You know way better than I. It's much easier to look and say there is a first cause. It's much easier to say there is a designer, there is an order, there is a creator. Now, you may not want to bow before him, but the reality of it is there is someone who has done that. And that someone is God. The question is not where is God. The question should be where isn't God. That's the question. A number of years ago, about five, six years ago, somebody purchased billboards all over America. You remember that? And they put up different things, and one of those billboards said this, I exist, therefore you are. That's a great statement. I exist, therefore you are, because if he doesn't exist, we are not. 
If you look at the scriptures, there's a concept called the Trinity. The Trinity is uh, basically one, we say, the word Trinity does not appear in the Bible, so some people pick it apart and say, you know, it's an invention of theologians, invention of preachers, etc., etc. But the scriptures talk about the Trinity in a number of ways. Let me define it for you. The Trinity is one true God existing in three co-equal, co-eternal persons. Co-equal, they're all the same. Co-eternal, they've existed forever. The same in essence, but different in person. Same in essence, but different in person. The scriptures talk about the Trinity without using the word Trinity. For instance, Genesis 1, 26, it says, let us, plural, make man in our image. In Matthew 28, 28, 19, the Great Commission, it talks about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus himself in John chapter 10, verse 30 says, I and the Father are one. If somebody says Jesus never claimed to be God, all you need to do is take him to the book of John. There are seven I am's in John, all seven of them. Jesus is declaring to be God in the flesh. Here's a little chart for you to look at, basically explaining the Trinity in diagram form. God is the Father, God is the Son, God is the Spirit, but the Father is not the Son, the Father is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Son. Three people, one, one and three, three and one. That's the Trinity. So if God does exist, what's he like? It's interesting, as I went back and read Hitchens and some of his stuff, and I didn't read, I just read one, perused one book, God is Not Great is the name of the book. In an interview on CNN and Larry King about four or five years ago, he said, I wrote that book saying God doesn't exist because of his people. He looked at so-called Christians and said, if this is the product of their God, he's not there. That's a tragedy. That's a tragedy. So what does God really look like and what should our response be to him if he does exist? Well, in Exodus chapter 3, that's where I'd like to take you. We could go any number of places, but I just want to show you some of the attributes of God. And if he does exist, we're going to do what our response should be. Let me remind you that the nation of Israel has been in exile for 400 years in Egypt. And now God has heard their pleas and he's going to free them from bondage. He speaks to Moses through a burning bush, and and basically the first thing we see is that God is compassionate, and therefore we should cry out to him. In Exodus chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, it says, The Lord said, I've seen your affliction, I have heard your cry, I am aware of your sufferings. In verse 8, I have come down to deliver you from the power of the Egyptians and to take you in to the promised land. Basic conclusion from that is God is compassionate. He hears our cries and we cry out to him. He's a compassionate father. One of the attributes of our father is he is compassionate. Sometimes his timing is not our timing. They've been crying out for a season. God didn't respond in their timetable. God responded to his timetable. But he's compassionate. He said, I've heard your cry. I'm going to free you from Egyptian rule. Our grandkids came to visit uh, for a day, I forget when it was, this week, last week. They were here for a day, take pictures and stuff, and, and uh, went outside for a few minutes. And uh, a couple of them are running down the sidewalk, and Hudson scrapes, he falls. He does a face plant on the sidewalk, kind of falls down, gets scraped up, and he looks up at me, and he says, help me, Papa Doe, help me. Well, I decided this would be a good time to teach him a couple of lessons about life. So I said, Hudson, you're five years old now. You've got to grow up. You've got to toughen up. Life is tough. You've got to get up. You're going to be okay. Be a man. (laughs) Now, how many of you believe I did that? (laughs) I mean, you don't tell a five-year-old kid that. I I went to Hudson, and I saw I scraped up. I mean, let's go to the UR and get you treated right away, buddy. (laughs) 
I mean, a, a good father, a good mother, a good grandfather, a good grandmother. I mean, you go there and pick them up. I didn't tell them those things. I, I went and picked them up and held them up and said, you're going to be okay, buddy's little lip is quivering a little bit. But he was just fine, gave him a kiss, and it all magically went away, and he went running again. That's your father. He's compassionate. We sang that song. Every song we sang today, we picked out to go along with this message, how he loves you. How he, He's a compassionate father. Some of you do not have compassionate fathers. It's hard for you to see him as a compassionate father. The scriptures paint him over and over as a compassionate father. He says this, I'm here when you need me. Another one of those billboards. Another billboard said this, talk to me, God. Just talk to me. He's a compassionate father. You should cry out to him. He is omnipresent. You should trust him. If you look at verses 11 and 12 in Exodus 3, Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? Moses has eye disease. He's focused on himself, not upon God. And he says, I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't do it. God's answer to him in verse 12, Certainly I will be with you. If you write in your Bibles, underline those words, I will be with you. It's a promise God gave Moses. A little later, when Moses dies, a few decades later, Joshua takes over in Joshua chapter 1, three times, God tells Joshua, be strong and courageous, be strong and courageous, strong and courageous. All three times, he parallels that by saying, I am with you. We go to the Great Commission in Matthew 28. Lo, I am with you until the end of the age. We go, and here's another billboard that was out there. I will never leave or forsake you out of Hebrews. The great, probably the psalm of greatest comfort is the 23rd psalm. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, what's it say next? Thou, what? Art with me. The presence of the Father should bring us great comfort. And in that comfort, we should trust him. Moses says, I can't go. God says, that's okay. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be next to you every step of the way. It's Danny Dutton saying, when we go to camp, if you're an atheist, you're in trouble because you go to camp, your parents can't be with you, but God can. And when the big kids throw you deep in, if you don't swim too well, here's the good news. God's with you. God's with you. I would also say take swimming lessons too. (laughs) God is also eternal, so we should submit to him in the next little section. We look at verses 13, 14, and 15. Moses said, Behold, I'm going to go to the sons of Israel. I'll say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me. Now they may say to me, What's his name? What should I say to them? God said, Tell them, I am who I am. Basically, he's saying, I am the one who always has been, I am the one who am, or who is, and I am the one who always will be. He's saying, I am the pre-existent, always eternal God. I always have been, and because I have always been, you should submit to me. I am the eternal, self-existent God who always has and always will be. Submit to me. He's sovereign. We should obey him. He's sovereign over everything. So the result of this, we should obey him. God, uh, Moses objects. God says, I'm going to be with you. God says, I am who I am ascending you. Moses has another objection in chapter 4, verse 1. It says, what if they will not believe? Or what if they won't listen to what I say? 
They may say the Lord hadn't appeared to you. They're saying, Moses, who in the world are you? God hadn't appeared to you. It's just a figment of your imagination. It's your fertile mind, whatever else. And God says, Moses, what's in your hand? He said, a staff, throw it on the ground. Throws it on the ground, becomes a snake. Now he says, pick it up by the tail. Why would he have him do that? Because a snake was worshipped in Egypt. If you look at the Egyptians, many of their, many of their statues, etc., have snakes. It's because snakes were part of their worship process. Moses, I'm greater than the gods of Egypt. Not only that, Moses, I want you to put your hand in your bosom, then I want you to take it out. It's leprous. Stick it back in. Take it out. It's healed. Moses, I am the sovereign God of the universe. I'm greater than the gods of Egypt. I'm greater than the diseases that inflict man. Not only that, Moses, the Nile was the, the, the sun and the Nile were the greatest things the Egyptians worshipped. In verse 9, he says, if these two signs are not enough, Moses, I'll turn the water and the Nile into blood. He's saying, Moses, I'm greater than the greatest things the Egyptians worship. I'll show them that the Nile is not a source of life, it's a source of death. I'm greater than all of that. So Moses, do what I'm asking you to do. Because God is sovereign, we should obey him. But we don't. But we don't. Instead of running from sin, we embrace sin. Instead of restoring a relationship, we divide it instead of reigniting a walk with God, we walk away. Instead of resuming a ministry, we stop. Instead of rewriting our epitaph, we don't. Instead of relinquishing control, we hold on tight. He's compassionate. He's omnipresent. He's eternal. He's sovereign. He's patient. You know why I say that? Because after all these things, after all these answers that God gave to Moses, Moses says, God, i got one more question. got one more question. In verse 10, he says, God, I've never been able to speak that well. I've never been eloquent in speech in the past nor since. And so, God, would you send somebody else? God says, Moses, who do you think made man's mouth? Moses, I just changed a staff into a snake. I just made your hand leprous and healed it. And you're worried about not being able to talk? If I'm God, if I'm God, this was my uh, billboard for Moses. Moses, I'm going to come down there. Uh, He is also patient. Don't test him as we just said. He's omnipotent. We need to fear him. The 12 plagues take, or the 10 plagues take place through the next chapters all the way through chapter 12. And the result we see God is omnipotent. He's powerful over everything. All the plagues are polemics against different Egyptian gods. And he's showing to the nation of Israel and to Moses, you can trust me, I'm greater than all. He's saying, I'm greater than every god the Egyptians have ever worshipped. He's faithful, accept him, that's Passover, Exodus chapter 12. Next week we look at Christology, a study of the person of Christ. Because he is faithful, because he has given his son for us, we can accept him. That's a mouthful. Does he exist? Yes, he does. What's he like? He is compassionate, omnipresent, eternal, sovereign, patient, omnipotent, and faithful. Here's the good news. The God of the universe desires for you to enjoy him now and to spend turning in his presence. I mean, a lot of people, all they think about is the future, the future, the future, being escaping from earth, not being here, gone to heaven. That's all great. That's great news. There's also great news in this, that God desires for you to enjoy him right now. 
Quit looking for the escape and enjoy him while you've got him. As you look at all this, does God exist? He exists. So what should we do? We should see him rightly and respond to him accordingly. He's asking us this question. If you're not, is there somebody else? If you're not following me, walking with me, trusting me, is there somebody else? So I ask you, is there? How great is our God? Sing with me, how great is our God? My favorite story on that I've used ten times, I bet. Louis the Great, king of France. He's dying. He makes sure that everyone knows exactly what he wants when he dies. One of the things he wants is to be in the greatest cathedral of all of Paris, to be placed there with one candle above his coffin, illuminating him, illuminating the coffin, illuminating Louis the Great. The Archbishop of uh, Paris had the honors to say the final mass of Louis the Great. He walked down the magnificent aisle of the cathedral, walked up to that candle on that single candlestick, blew it out, and he said, only God is great. Is he in your life? Father, thank you. Thank you for revealing yourself to us this day. Thank you for being a God who is compassionate and faithful and loving and caring, omnipotent, omnipresent, greater than us. And Father, it's our desire to know you, to serve you, to glorify you with all that we are. Thank you for revealing who you are. If you're running from God today, he's going to find you. You're hiding from God today, that's a joke. He sees you. So why don't you just relinquish whatever it is you think you control and submit to him. And if you don't know Jesus Christ, his son, the greatest gift he's ever sent to this world, the Savior welcomes you with open arms to accept him and the forgiveness of sin that he offered himself for. How great is our God. How great are you, our God. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.